Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, you sent me an article from The Atlantic. It was titled, Get Ready for the Great Urban Comeback. The article just sort of brought up how cities, after great disasters, after great calamities, have found ways to change themselves, reinvent themselves to be more useful for people. And here's the best paragraph I read. America's fractious and tragic response to the COVID-19 pandemic has made the nation look more like a failed state than like the richest country in world history. Doom scrolling through morbid headlines in 2020, one could easily believe that we have lost our capacity for effective crisis response. And maybe we have, but a major crisis has a way of exposing what is broken and giving a new generation of leaders a chance to build something better. Sometimes the ramifications of their choices are wider than one might think. And Don, this whole article just gives really interesting historical examples where major cities, major urban areas have faced major disasters and how they've come back. What did you think about the article? I thought it was fascinating that we're learning from big events and that when societies change as a result of their cities changing. This author does a really interesting job of just sort of bringing up COVID-19. How do we as a society change at some point based upon this? What are some of the new standards, new technologies that we have? Some of the things that he brings up are, do we update ventilation standards? So much of our buildings are built with the idea of totally blocking out the, the outside, blocking out fresh air, blocking out sunlight. Do we need more windows? Do we need to rethink how we circulate air through buildings. We already are seeing some school districts and some buildings rethinking their ventilation systems as a way to try to fight against COVID-19. Traffic also comes up a ton in this article of rethinking the amount of automobile traffic. Also having people in less in close proximity, having people out moving around in space. And part of that was getting rid of cars in the city so you could move around. Something they're already doing in Europe a bit with regulating how many diesel and gasoline engines can be running in a city in a given time. The one thing I wondered, though, is all of the examples that were given in this article were natural disasters, fires, blizzards, and this is a disease. This is a airborne communicable disease that seems to spread really well in densely populated locations. And therefore, I kind of did wonder if this article is fair in terms of, do you think cities really will change because of a disease? Yeah, well, I think they have to. And part of the article, it does talk about cholera and the disease that affected the way cities were in England at the time and the massive changes that took place in how they dealt with human and animal waste, which ended cholera and the biggest killer. And the life expectancy in big cities in England went from 40 to 60 in just a few years by doing this. So it is a disease, yes. But part of these ideas is how do you deal with a disease to change the way the city runs. There are ideas, or shouldn't there be ideas, that we could get rid of cars, that people are outside, that people are walking more, that we're not as concentrated, that we get rid of some of these urban office buildings, which are now likely to be empty because many people from work from home and have more space with more apartments and people can live in greater areas where they're not as concentrated, but still yet in a city. I thought that part in the article was really interesting when they bring up Edwin Chadwick. He was the kind of scientist that went through England, through industrial England in the 1840s, trying to figure out why everybody was dying of cholera. And he comes through and just realizes like, look, 
Our sanitation systems are terrible. The amount of sewage and the water that we're drinking is way too high of an amount. And he came up with this like explosive report that really alarmed the government. And the government started slowly paving streets, rethinking sewage disposal, making clean water a priority for all citizens. And as you said, the life expectancy jumps within a couple of decades. I just think about the idea, and this is where I get a little cynical about government, and it kind of hits what we talked about a little bit last week and even in our first episode about building, in that do you think an explosive report about ventilation systems and buildings and how that transmits, not only COVID-19, but also probably cold and flu season, right? Any sorts of viruses. Do you think like local governments, state governments, national governments would actually be interested in reading these things and actually acting upon them? It seems like data. It seems like science. We have all sorts of reports that we read all the time, and yet so little is done. I mean, I'm always amazed whenever you see every year the engineers of America come out and they, they grade all of the state's infrastructure. And like Michigan has been getting like a D minus now for the last couple of years as we continue to have bridges and roads just totally unserviced. And no matter how much data we point at them, it never seems like we can ever fix anything. Do you think some sort of a report on how we're living or, or how COVID is impacting things or how the next disease could come could actually change our building development? I think so. And let's take a brief moment to recognize that the scariest words in the history of the world are not, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help or whatever Ronald Reagan said. I mean, the government did help and it created much longer and better lives because there is a third of a cup of raw sewage in every quart of water in the river, which is just repulsive to think. But yes, the government did something to fix something. So it can happen. Can it happen in 2020? I'm not sure. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think somebody would figure out what's going on and have a way to solve the situation. Certainly, it's not just COVID. There are lots and lots of people die from the flu. It's very scary out there. And many people don't want to get the flu shots. We could change the way our buildings are ventilated. I'm not impressed with the HVAC in most places, although they seem to be blisteringly cold in many stores. All the examples they gave is they gave a major natural disaster, and then they talked about how 10, 20, 30 years later, the city had changed. It's that whole idea of incremental change. It's not like it all just changes overnight, but big projects take many days to do, and therefore, you never see just the change. But that's also why you have a government that sticks on a project, because it's looking through generational change. And a part of me was like, well, this is kind of a hopeful article. COVID-19, it could change the way that we live in buildings. It could change the way that we interact in cities. But I also then just kind of thought, this could take decades. You and I might be dead. It will just be some other magazine writer that's like, hey, this thing called COVID-19 came in and a lot of people died. A lot of people got sick. Cities shut down. And so therefore, it transformed the way cities started to behave. And look at these wonderful changes. They have new HVAC systems. But I don't know, part of me is kind of like wanting to see, do I get to benefit from anything sooner? Yeah, I, I sure hope we get to benefit from it sooner. I mean, I hope it's greater than HVAC. I hope we have some big solutions. I really want there to be a positive takeaway from this and that we change things for the better. To your point, yes, the aqueducts were made in New York City were made less than 10 years after that fire and that the burying of railroads and, uh, and wires happen fairly quickly as well. We should be able to make some quick changes that really change the way our cities function. And it could be as simple as 
let's space things out. Let's have more outdoor seating. Let's have more people moving outside rather than on subways. Or maybe the biggest change of all is we're willing to wear masks and we're willing to put ourselves into a tiny bit of discomfort in order to live healthy and longer lives. Now that's a good point about masks. And I feel like right now we're all still in a point where we keep waiting for the day where we can throw our masks away. And that seems to kind of be based upon maybe a vaccine or two. Is it possible that 10, 20 years from now, we're still wearing masks in cities, uh, in crowded areas? Masks are something you see in a lot of large Asian cities. Usually you tend to think of them because of the pollution in some of those cities. At the same time, it does seem like it's a way to prevent a lot of communicable diseases from being spread. I've been on a subway. You've been on a subway? Oh, yes. Do you kind of wish that you had a mask on in hindsight when you're sitting in the subway? Something gross is happening. You're like, it wouldn't bother me to have a mask on right here, right? Totally. I I mean, I think about sitting on an airplane, sitting in movie theaters, (laughs) taxi cabs, right? I mean, all of these things where you like never thought about it more than than a moment. And yet you're like, man, why was I getting into all these places uh, without a mask? Yeah, I'm a little bit grossed out. I, I'm okay with it. It's like when I walk into a stinky bathroom. If I have a mask on, mask on, I have no problem with this. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of, kind of glad I have the mask. It doesn't really bother me. Um, it's not a big deal. I'm just used to a discomfort. It's like wearing uncomfortable shoes. You just kind of have it on. You're like, eh, it is what it is. And you get used to it and move on. I don't like it when I'm exercising or running or coaching, but I don't mind it that much. And maybe the biggest takeaway is that we need to wear masks in places like this or be in less crowds. I was just reading an article this morning in the Times that the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Whitney in New York City have reduced their capacity down by, by 75%. So only 25% of people are in, allowed in that used to be, and that it's fantastic. You're standing in front of the Monet and there's space and you can look at it. It reminds me that I went to the Uffizi in uh, Florence. I'm probably mispronouncing it. It was a great museum with not that many people around. You could actually enjoy the art. Unlike the Louvre where you go and it's just throngs of people and you're trying to look at the Mona Lisa and you're just, it's like boxing out in the paint. It's not very pleasant. Maybe should we, have, we should have a little more space. I'm not actually opposed to that. Let's plan a little, make reservations, have a little space. There's something to be said for this. So this is my pushback against the entire article. Why do we have to think about a great urban comeback? Why can't we possibly say, you know what the worst thing we ever did as a country? We built large cities and jam-packed them with people. All we've talked about is the dying off of rural and small town America. And yet, why don't we maybe make a push to go back there? Why shouldn't we be writing articles saying, is COVID finally our wake up call to move away from the large cities? Now, in some businesses where people are lucky enough to be able to telework, some people are moving back to smaller, less crowded areas. I just think about, you know, four years ago when President Trump ran on his election, it was kind of run on the idea of bringing back the small town or the one factory town. In America to this day, we have part of our myth of exceptionalism is that we all came from small towns where everybody knew everybody's name, where we didn't have to lock our doors. The barber and the shopkeepers gave the kids lollipops. And, you know, you could trade fresh eggs to the doctor to to get a checkup, right? Isn't that what we believe in America to be all that's right, and yet all that's wrong seems to be the big, nasty, crowded, polluted cities. Why isn't this just an opportunity to say, let's not fix cities. There's still too many people. Let's go back home. 
Well, I like the small town idea. And the part of it that I like is the lack of income inequality in that in your small town, there's the person that the wealth is the wealthiest person is probably not that far removed from the person that's the poorest person and that people are fairly equal. Now, this is also a time when there's segregation and tremendous discrimination against Native Americans, against African Americans, against women, and this kind of kept the status quo, which I think many people want to go back to. But the other side of this argument is, where did all our great productivity come from? Where did all our great ideas come from, which have led to the profits that we make? Big cities. There are big ideas that are happening in big cities. And I remember reading, and I can't remember where, but you probably read it as well, that there was a the building on the Harvard campus in world, during World War II where all these incredible ideas came together because these great scientists were crossing paths with each other and just kind of idly chit-chatting. And I believe the Apple headquarters is built on this idea that makes people cross paths with other people that are doing different things and that this crisscrossing and cross-pollination led to incredible ideas and developments. In big cities, that's where these things are happening. It's not like in the middle of rural Missouri, they're developing the laser at the same time as they're developing the microchip. That's very true. And you're right. Like the idea of a clustering effect, uh, obviously the Metro Detroit area has all the automotive brains in the world working here on various things. And it seems to just kind of continue to attract more automotive talent here. Silicon Valley gets all the computer brains out there. New York gets all the finance brains out there. And you're definitely right. It helps bring competition, share ideas. But again, if the whole point is, look, we're living in these cities and they're crowded and they're polluted and they're really unhealthy. And now we're seeing a lot of these places essentially kind of quasi shut down because of a virus. I just wonder if this author is really, you know, instead of dreaming about how is it going to be different, they're going to be so wonderful. Why not go back and, and invest in small town America and, you know, get people to leave? I mean, or get people to go back. I, I mean, the last 50 years have seen the great urbanization across the world. More people now live in cities than in rural areas. Whereas, as you know, before all of human history, people have lived more in rural areas than in cities. I just wonder, like, was that where everything went wrong? Is that where we see all the great diseases throughout history, the Black Death? They ravage the cities more than anything else because that's where everybody is. Shouldn't this just be a wake-up call to go back to the farm? Well, also, you know that people don't move much, that people rarely leave their county. They're likely to move within their county that they grew up in and to the biggest city in their county, but they're unlikely to leave their county. And that has not led to tremendously good things. It's led to stagnation in much of the country. In West Virginia and Southern Ohio, there's declining coal revenue and business there, but people aren't leaving. They're just getting more and more depressed economically and emotionally because they just stay there. And if people moved, and that's the great wonder I have all the time, if there's jobs to be had in the New York City area, if there's jobs to be had in Boston and San Francisco, why don't people leave Southern Ohio and go there? but they don't want to, they want to stay there. So in a certain sense, they do stay there, but then when they do, it's not like industry comes to them. You can say you're arguing that people need to go back to these places, but that doesn't mean that jobs go back to them too. And there is a weird kind of subset where tech type people who are able to make big money regardless of where they are and have no actual physical home can go to rural Montana and get a ranch and live there in the beauty that is Montana and bring their tech money with them because they're not really bound to any corporate entity or city. Then that's possible, but I don't think that the jobs come necessarily away from the cities. 
No, that's a good point. I mean, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing politically in our nation is, is a great debate between rural and urban lifestyle, right? We see a lot of disagreement. People that live in an urban world, it's hard for them to really fathom and, and, and see what life in the rural world is and vice versa. And as you said, a lot of people don't want to go where the jobs are. They want to stay in their hometown and continue to live that lifestyle. And you might just say, well, that's just tough. You, you need to make a choice, you need to, to move on. But I just wonder, I wonder if we're just making too many assumptions that the urban life is best for all. Now you could say environmentally, it's better when a lot of people live packed together because then we don't have to have as much driving. We don't need to burn as many fossil fuels. But from a COVID standpoint, it seems like it might be the rural place that maybe wins out in this argument. Obviously, the article was about how cities can change. And one of the things, though, that I thought this article totally ignored is the idea of, okay, let's just set COVID aside for a second. The last couple of weeks, I feel like the news stories that have even come before the COVID news stories are the latest hurricanes, right? It's right now it's hurricane season. It seems like every year we turn on the news around September and we watch two things. We watch the latest hurricanes coming to the Gulf Coast in Florida and we watch California on fire again. The one thing that never seems to get brought up or I haven't seen a lot of think pieces on this is isn't it just time to abandon these areas in terms of where people live? Isn't it time to just say, you know, every year we keep rebuilding and yet we know that another hurricane is going to come and knock down these buildings. Isn't it time we just say these should be areas where they are extremely less dense in their population or maybe just serve as some commercial activity zones? But what is the point of rebuilding all the time when they're just getting destroyed? Shouldn't we use these natural disasters as a reason or a lesson learned to not live there anymore? Good point. I will answer that. First, I do want to go back. New York City has changed in that all the really wealthy people that had second homes in the country went to their second homes in the country, and that's where they're living. But anyway, coming back to, yes, rebuilding. So there are people that live in these areas that burn every year in California and they rebuild and they're rebuilding with insurance money that we subsidize by paying higher premiums ourselves. It's not like their premiums are, I mean, sure they're high, but they're not crazy because they are subsidized by us. And same with the Gulf Coast. I mean, although the floods are not able to be covered by insurance, the wind is, which always sets up for an interesting argument, I imagine, between insurance adjusters about whether your house was destroyed by the water or the wind. But yeah, they keep rebuilding in the same places that are very, very dangerous places. And it just doesn't seem like a place I want to live. It could be a place I want to visit, but not a place where I want to live. Is there a difference? I don't know. I mean, you could definitely want to live in a potential fire zone in California or live in a hurricane area. I mean, I guess people have their desire or people grew up there. It's what they know. They're kind of used to that. I mean, growing up, whenever we were in northern Michigan and we would see the latest hurricane, you know, our teacher was always like, don't worry, kids. Those people down there, they would rather face a hurricane than a snowstorm because that's what we got. <laughs> and I guess for some reason that that made us feel better about the people down there. But I just wonder, instead of handing out a t-shirt that says, the hurricane can't keep me down forever, or I'm going to rebuild because that's who we are. We're tough, strong, sturdy people, America. Like, we can beat Mother Nature. A part of me is like, well, why don't we just accept that we can't beat Mother Nature, and then it's just a waste of money to keep rebuilding and just move people out. We've got a little rural areas that could use more population. And yet that never gets talked about. And again, this is just another one of these articles where it's like, well, think about the changes we're going to make, the new technologies that's going to save us. But as we always know, there's always another disaster. I mean, this article alone cites New York City, I believe, two or three times from 
fires to blizzards and how the city kept having to change. But a part of me is like, well, maybe the lesson was we just shouldn't have had this many people living in an urban area to begin with. Well, okay. So there was an article in the Times I read a couple of years ago about a small barrier island off the coast of Louisiana that was connected by a bridge that had been washed out and it wasn't consistent electricity. And they tried to get these kids to school and it was just a nightmare. And there's like 50 families there. And ultimately the federal government said, no, you're all done. We're going to move you out. We'll buy you out so you uh, can build somewhere else. And people were, of course, putting their flag down and claiming this is their land. They don't want to move. And ultimately, they got bought out and they left. I think that people, as a form of liberty, they think of life, liberty, and happiness. And they think, my liberty is my land, which I own, which my family has owned or whatever, and that I have the right to live here. I think that gets confused with the right and the wise decision to live there. Do you have to live there? Did you just want to live there because your parents have? Is it a wise place to live? Or maybe do I have this all wrong because I'm willing to move other places? I've lived in two cities in Michigan and in California. I'm happy to move somewhere else. I'm not really tied to here. It's more about my family and the people I care about than about the specific location. It seems like we should just move on, right? Can't the government just tell us to leave? Well, imminent domain, I, I guess um, the, the government would have to decide they either need to build a road there, right, for the public good, or can the government decide, I'm sorry, your house is in hurricane territory, and as a nation, we are done subsidizing the rebuilds that happen here. Therefore, this is now going to become a public good, meaning the American finance. Therefore, they could take it away. It seems possible. I guess maybe you can make a legal argument. But you're right, though, about people just saying, this is my land. I mean, that's a, that's a very American feel there, right? This is my property. I'm allowed to be here. And it's always interesting when you watch the news during a hurricane evacuation, when they interview somebody that's like, I'm not leaving. This is my land. Like, I've sat through 20 of these things, and I'll be here when this one's over. It doesn't make any sense. The other thing, too, on this one is I always think about Florida. And if you look at the projections of global warming and climate change as the ocean levels rise, huge chunks of Florida are going to be gone. Large chunks of the, of the, east, of the eastern seaboard are going to be gone uh, just underwater. And yet people keep building there, right? It's, it's interesting because you're already seeing where they've got flood days or backups in their, in their underground water systems because of the amount of water coming in. Yet people keep building there. Don't you think we should be thinking about that? I can't imagine. So there's articles uh, that I read not long ago about Miami Beach invested like something like $20 million in giant pumps because on these crazy high tides, Miami Beach just floods and there's nothing they can do about it. And it floods that they can't really build dikes around the outside because the ground underneath is like Swiss cheese. So the water can come up from underneath. So there's no way to barrier it off. There's no way to deal with this. It's just, you're gonna be flooded. Water's coming in, there's nothing you can do. And I went to Harsons Island this summer in outside of Detroit and it was the same thing like the water's lapping at the base of people's houses because the Great Lakes are so high. I just can't imagine that people are still buying there yet every time I look in the Wall Street Journal Friday Mansion section which I believe is a great name for the real estate section there's advertisements for Miami Beach. I just can't imagine buying there like don't you know that the water's going to come up? I mean can't you see that this is going to end poorly? Why would you invest in your property here? This makes no sense to me. And the same thing for Harsons Island and other low-lying islands around the Great Lakes. Can't you see where this ends? Don't you want to get out now, quickly? Who's buying? So even when you're a billionaire, you won't be uh, buying land in this area? 
no, when I'm a billionaire, I will not be buying land in this area. The only other thing I could think about as I was reading this article is obviously they show how cities change. And this guy is trying to give a positive message. I think people are looking for how is COVID going to impact us. And obviously, no one ever quite knows exactly how something impacts people until um, years down the road. I remember my grandfather. He was a child of the depression. He became somebody that like constantly stressed and thought about money and spending. Even though he had a large savings, it seemed like it was something that really unnerved him because he had lived through a traumatic economic event. You know, you met grandparents of, of some of my friends who were eating like black bananas. And it was like, oh my God, like that looks like the worst thing you could eat. I mean, I've never seen something more black. Like you touched it and it just went to like mush. And yet, it was like, no, like we eat everything in our house because of how they were raised and how they got through the depression. This has been a traumatic event in our society. And it really makes me wonder how things are going to change, even though we can't quite predict them. Do you have any other ideas about how this changes, either whether it's city or behavior? I think it changes education for the long run. I think that some kids have liked remote teaching or learning and that they'll go more with that direction. There'll be more of a vagary between school hours and not school hours, and there'll be kids coming and going. Maybe that's the side that I see the most because obviously I'm in education and so are you. I wonder if people wear, wear masks in more times and more situations. If once this passes, I can't make other people wear masks, but I might wear a mask if I go to a crowded this or that, or I don't actually even mind wearing the mask at the store. And I think you'll see more of that. I'm not sure about that. I hope I see reduced capacity at a lot of museums and whatnot, and we could just have a little more space. Those are all really good points. Before COVID, if you would have worn a mask into a store, people would have stared at you long, hard, and made you even feel bad about it. What I'm amazed at now is how just accepting the whole thing of wearing a mask is, at least in our state. Now, if somebody's not wearing a mask, it seems to be the odd person out. I would assume at some point there'll be a transition. Some people start taking them off. But you're right. I, I bet you you could probably be wearing a mask for a long time and, and people aren't going to really be raising a question mark at all and stuff like that. One of the things I also thought about with this article is your guy, Walt Disney. Back in the 60s, he was approached basically by, by Florida, and he was looking for a place to build a second Disney World. Basically, like he went to the government of Florida, and they were like, God, we would love to have a Disneyland here. And Walt's like, fine, like, I'll build you another Disneyland. But he's like, I'm not interested in it at all. I've already done it. Instead, what he was really interested in was something called Epcot. Not Epcot, the theme park, like people think about with the huge ball and, you know, you can go around and visit the different countries and, and eat lots of fried food and stuff like that. Instead, what he was interested in, something he called the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. That's what Epcot stood for. And what he believed in was a futuristic city. He wanted to build a place where people could go and visit and then take ideas back to how humans live in the world and, and to help improve their cities. Here's just some of the ideas that he had, and I wanted just to get your thoughts. Is One, he wanted to get rid of the idea of cars. He wanted instead people movers and monorails, wanted lots of green spaces. He wanted to develop a place that looked like a wheel, where in the middle of the wheel was commerce, 
businesses where people worked it would be a covered almost dome like area and then as you moved out in the wheel that is where people live it's kind of interesting because a lot of the ideas that ebcat was supposed to be had kind of came up in this article a little bit about a healthier safer way to live you have any thoughts about that i like this idea and Florida at the time, I think, was the uh, place to do that. There's a area in Florida that was created by Ford executives called Rotunda West, where my father-in-law lived for a little bit. And yes, there's golfing around, and it's a circle, and there people drove. Not like the villages, your favorite place to visit. It is interesting. I mean, when you were talking, I was thinking, where would I like to take people or my kids to see how people live differently? And how differently can it be done and can it be done well? And in my head, I came upon Japan. When we visited Japan, kids walked to school in a walking bus where the oldest kids would walk around the neighborhood and collect all the youngest kids. And they walked to school in a big line. And they wore jackets matching their, their classroom. And they just walked to school. The community was smaller and people didn't drive much. And they moved around. And the older people lived with the middle, with their parents. The, the parents lived with the kids who then had kids. So you had three, four generation households. And it seemed to run totally different. And I was really engaged. There were lots of people around. And the crowding probably isn't good with COVID, although their numbers are spectacularly low for COVID. But it seemed to be a whole different lifestyle that in many ways I think is fantastic and we could learn something from. Well, it's interesting because what you're also saying right there is not necessarily an engineering feat, but it's a community thing, right? People engaged with each other, looking out for each other. And that was brought up in the article is the idea of like, what should a community be? What do we want out of a community? It's people looking out for each other, right? Taking care of each other. And part of that's that collectivist culture. Now, the question coming back to you is, you have traveled more widely than I have. What have you seen from abroad? What, what could we learn from to take back to this? You know, I lived in Egypt for two years, and I was always amazed at the intergenerational living that happened. Most people in Egypt live in apartments because Cairo is an extremely crowded city. People would live in apartment buildings. Their grandparents might be in the apartment right next to them if they weren't living with them. I was always amazed at you didn't just necessarily need to talk to a mom or a dad in order to try to square something away with one of my students. I taught mostly Egyptian students. Instead, I might talk to an older brother. Now, part of it might have been because the older brother spoke better English than the parents. But you could talk to an older brother and have the same sort of conversation that in America you might have with a parent, if that makes sense. You could talk to a grandparent sometimes. Whenever I got invited to come over to families, dinner parties, you would just see everything from the youngest kid to the aunts to the uncles, because everybody lived in the same place. There's something about that idea, again, of community or putting something in a in place where everybody's kind of looking out for each other. That was something I just thought was really powerful that we don't see here. And Cairo, you could argue, has lots of infrastructure issues that make their city polluted and, and overcrowded and, and congested with traffic. But the family thing, I think, did stick out with me. And it's something I still think about often. Which is echoing a little bit of what I'm saying in Japan and a collectivist idea. It also brings us full circle back to your idea. Should we go back to living where our parents lived? You know, that's the problem with this. I live only an hour from my parents, but for a while I lived a couple thousand miles from my parents. And you live a few hundred miles from your parents. Should we have stayed where they, we were? Should they come to live with us? Would that be better for everybody? 
It's an interesting question. And, um, you know, I do wonder at some point as my parents get older, as I'm sure everybody, our generation's got to figure out is, is that the point when our parents do have to move in to live with us so that we can take care of them? That's definitely possible. I noticed that right now while we're doing online learning because the schools are closed down, my mother had to come in and live with us for two weeks and try to help my children do their online learning. And, uh, Tonight, actually, my other mother-in-law is going to be coming down um, and doing a two-week tour of duty here. And that's kind of how we're solving it. And the one thing that I've got a lot of friends that are sending their kids to their grandparents' houses because maybe they live in the same town. But it definitely is interesting how much of a hassle it's been to try to solve just who's going to help care for my children. I had a similar experience. My mother-in-law lived with us for a year because she had many health issues. And we were able to work together and help provide her what she needed. And I wonder, when you think about Cairo, when you think about Japan, those are places where it's either poverty or high real estate prices or both, where it's just untenable for one family to have a core group of four or five or six or whatever the mom, dad, and kids are and pay for somewhere to live. And there it's almost necessity to have these multiple generations in order because land is so expensive or the poverty is so entrenched. I wonder if we'd be better off if our parents did live with us and then we'd have more wealth to do more things. Do we really need more wealth? I feel like we're doing quite well. Well, we're not billionaires yet, but maybe at some point. Yes, maybe if we bring our parents in and we could uh, have that extra revenue, we could all together do cool things together. But I, I think you make a good point about relationships and about communities. And it's something that maybe we've discounted. And I, I think maybe it's more pushback on this article of everything's always about some technological solution, right? Okay, now we're going to put the wires underground. Okay, now we're going to be able to, to ride a subway underground so that when the snowstorm happens. But None of these articles just push back, and, and this has been brought up, but I do wonder if it should be talked about more, is that COVID, especially during the worst of the shutdowns, forced a lot of families to hang out together in ways that they never could have imagined. People were playing board games. People were watching family movies together. Lots of family walks were happening, all because it was just kind of nothing else to do, and also your family was kind of your only group that you were allowed to see, and in some ways, that's maybe getting underreported is how many people now are wanting to hang out with their family more than maybe before. Now you could say, Hey, there's some people that are like, I can't wait to get out of here. But I do wonder how has that shifted? And I'd love to get that. I'm very curious when younger kids are asked to go back to school, what's the level of anxiety and panic attacks that some of these kids are going to have because they're so used to being around their parents and siblings. And now all of a sudden it's like they're going back to this foreign world. Okay, so yeah, the technology aspect's interesting because if technical fixes are quick and easy and we don't have to examine who we are or how we function. So if you quickly bury the wires underground, that solves it. We don't have to think about how we interact or how we conduct our lives. And so if there was a technical solution, which is obviously what everybody wants, a quick vaccine, so that we don't have to re-examine who we are or how we act or as, a, as people in a society. So yes, that would be better. It's easier to reckon with that than it is to reckon with how actually who we are and how we behave. I, I'm going to take the other side. Maybe the people going to school better appreciate school and are more excited about school. And maybe they feel more grounded because they have a stronger family base to begin with, without as many travel sports, without as many activities going on, with their home, with their families, maybe they feel more connected and more confident going out. Or if their family's dysfunctional, maybe the opposite. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I want to go back to Epcot for a minute. I know you love Disney, but 
I think that this brings up an interesting point is you can go on YouTube and you can Walt, watch Walt Disney's original presentation for Epcot. And again, he dies like two years after he kind of made these presentations and therefore they never even got close to making it. The, the best they did was that like eight years after they built the Magic Kingdom in Florida, they built Epcot, the theme park, not a, an experimental place for humans to live. But some of his other ideas about Epcot was that it would have full employment. Everybody there would have a job, but also nobody there would be allowed to own anything. They would not be able to own their own property. Instead, it would just be owned by essentially EBCOT itself so that if people weren't living a certain way, if they weren't maintaining things a certain way, if they weren't behaving a certain way, they could be booted out. And I thought that was sort of interesting, maybe kind of sinister, but also it brought me up to another thing I'd read I don't know, a couple of years ago, and someone said, you know why the Magic Kingdom in Disney World is amazing? Is because it shows what happens when you have private property. There's no trash at the Magic <laughs> Nobody throws gum on the ground, and if they do, it's picked up immediately. The bathrooms always smell wonderful. This is a place that every day has 70,000 guests, and yet the next day you never would have known it because it's sparkling clean. And their whole point was, Imagine if cities were these big private or chartered ideas where maybe you just have one person that owns it and they set the rules as to how we're going to live here. Do you think that might be a better model for how our cities are constructed? That they shouldn't be just something where we have collective ownership and collective city councils to kind of fumble through the issues of the day. Instead, how about just one person that owns the area and their rules are the rules? And would you want to live there if those are the rules, if it is this utopian communist society that you talk about? Yeah, I don't I, know. I, I think it can't, you're talking about rules. I mean, if we go back to Japan and Tokyo, there's no litter, there's no garbage on the ground, there's no gum thrown down there because it's a collectivist culture and it's owned a lot by the Japanese government, but there is private ownership. It's just an entirely different collectivist culture. So if a person can create the culture so that everything will be controlled and valued the same, I guess maybe people want to live there. Isn't that what San Francisco is? I mean, and you're right. There are definitely certain communities that have an identity and certain communities take care of, you know, their environment and have certain ordinances that are, that are much more friendly than other ones. But I just wonder about the idea of private cities, the idea that like you have to earn your way in there to to live there or you have to behave a certain way. I mean, I've lived in some subs that have a lot of like strict rules about like you got to have so many colored plants in your yard or, you know, in order to get a pool or something, you have to get approval from your local board so that we don't have a bunch of weird stuff in everybody's yards, making it feel, making it have a different feel than we want. But I just wonder of like, let's just take away everybody's ownership opportunity and just say, look, you want to be here, then you got to behave a certain way. And it's, it's kind of sinister, but yet maybe Walt was onto something. I think there's a lot of resorts that are run like that. If you want to live at Vail, it's kind of the same thing, I think. I mean, it pretty much caters to the extremely wealthy that are the ones that can afford to buy into that sort of thing. Unless you're talking about I'm a, you're a billionaire and you just create this and you take applications. But then that sounds like a college. Isn't that just a college that you explained? <laughs> Maybe, but I don't know. I mean, let's pretend you become that billionaire that we're really hoping for. Maybe you just, you just move to like the middle of Michigan and you do what other billionaires do. You just start buying up thousands of acres of cheap land, right? And now we've got McLaughlinville, and all of a sudden it's like 
okay, McLaughlinville is going to now start inviting people in and you just set up your rules and you offer people a lifestyle that may or may not appeal to them. And if it does, then come on in and we're going to start to, to build an economy. We're going to start to have industries. We're going to cater towards certain types of engineers that are going to develop, I don't know, electric vehicles or something like that. And we're going to make sure that every part of our city is geared towards making people happy, making people feel like they're a part of something. And at any point, people are allowed to leave if they don't buy in. But you also are always just sort of renting. You never get to buy any of the land from you. I think these have been created over and over again. It's just the, pro the public property part is that that's the part that hurts you because Americans want to own something. They don't want to rent forever. They want to have put their flag down and really own. I mean, that's what we've come back to again and again in this podcast. I've been to the Woodlands, Texas many times. My wife's family lives there and it's the utopian community you talk about, but it is Texas. They do buy the land and there are golf courses around to play in, but they all kind of buy into the same thing. And there's a wheel and in the middle is the, uh, place where you go shopping in it whatnot it's texas so you have to drive a truck but it, it's out there i think your tippling your tripping point is when you make it a utopian nobody owns this thing but i'm sure you would find the people that want to live there well don it's been a pleasure talking with this week i look forward to talking with you next week sounds good bye-bye zach have a good one take, take care